what uh, lots of us scholars and feminists argued that actually love jihad was actually a jihad against love it was a war against love you know it was this kind of a, a mythical and violent campaign it was emotive it was a political fantasy you know it was a mobilization strategy it was a crusade for you know political mobilization in the name of women charu gupta is a historian at delhi university she told us how this phenomenon known as love jihad or romeo jihad has gained traction in india some examples were quoted of hindu women actually eloping or running away with muslim men and then converting and it was said that this was forceful that these were actually not elopements they were like abductions they were like kidnappings these young girls were brainwashed you know and they were converted to islam and this was a conspiracy to increase muslim numbers but this was not necessarily the case at all take the example of hadia jahan who is in her 20s the ordeal has finally ended for hadia and her husband Shafeen Jahan as they reunited after over a year this after Hadia won a long legal battle where the hindu bodies are claimed that Hadia was a victim of love jihad addressing a press conference Hadia Hadia and her husband Shafeen are a young indian couple whose marriage was annulled after Hadia's hindu family alleged that she was brainwashed into the relationship and into converting to islam following a legal battle the marriage was restored by india's supreme court last year it's just one story that exemplifies the conservative backlash that is playing out in india as women increasingly assert their freedom to marry who they want i'm saying it a bit broadly but women in india have been asserting themselves they have been going out in public spaces expressing their desires expressing their love they're crossing religious and caste boundaries and this is causing a certain degree of anxiety in the conservative forces charu says the love jihad idea is not just about targeting women's freedom it is also linked to hindu nationalism ideas which promote the idea of india as a hindu nation On the other hand you can also use it to demonize certain kinds of men you know to demonize certain kind of you know particularly muslim men or to demonize a certain class of people and of course women in india are not just asserting their freedom to love who they want in many areas of life they are asserting their rights as citizens One in eight people in the world is an Indian under the age of 30. Ultimately, if the people of Indian Kashmir decide that they do not want to be a part of India, then all bets are off in terms of what Pakistan will do as well. All political parties will try to indulge in some sort of spinning and some sort of fake news. While Modi and the BJP's politics are hyper-nationalist, it shares with the current hypernationalist movement which is sweeping across the world he's representing the people who believe in and stand for a unified strong nation you're listening to part 4 of india tomorrow a series from the anthill podcast brought to you by the conversation i'm anabel bly from the conversation and i'm indrajit roy lecturer in politics at the university of york In this episode we are digging into what life is like for women in India. The extent that they make up an electoral group in Indian politics and how they are represented among the country's lawmakers. Like lots of countries across the world, 
India suffers from gender inequality. But in terms of global rankings, it scores pretty low. India comes in at number 130 out of 188 countries on the UN Development Programme's Gender Inequality Index. India is also pretty low down when it comes to global rankings of violence against women. The gang rape of a 23-year-old student in Delhi in 2012 sparked international outrage and led to huge campaigns in India to deal with its rape culture. Nonetheless, you'll regularly see cases of rape and sexual violence against women of all ages in the local news. India's National Crime Records Bureau reported more than 300,000 crimes against women, including nearly 40,000 rapes in 2016. That's the most recent government data available. To find out a bit more about how this affects the day-to-day lives of young women, we spoke to Sneha Krishnan at the University of Oxford. Sneha studies gender and youth in India and spent a year talking to dozens of young women in the city of Chennai, which is the capital of the southern state of Tamil Nadu. So sexual harassment as in most other contexts is a major problem in Indian cities. So the young women I met had interesting ways of dealing with it. So carrying a sharp an umbrella with a sharp tip was a common one on the bus. So there was a man behind you who was harassing you, you could push your umbrella into him, right? And they had other ways, they traveled in groups, they texted each other about their experiences, they had ways of coping with the perpetual occurrence of eve teasing or street sexual harassment in their lives. Eve teasing is how a lot of Indians colloquially refer to street sexual harassment, but a lot of feminists argue that phrase is particularly unhelpful. because they argue that the phrase eve teasing kind of minimizes the problem and makes it seem as if i mean the women are fail little creatures to be teased whereas it's not really teasing that's happening sneha pointed out the fact that there sometimes is a blurry line between harassment and flirting and a lot of that is to do with cultural expectations of how men and women should behave in india As scholars like Caroline Ozella at SOAS have written, this harassment can often pale into flirting as well. And the reason for that is that, well, it's very, very, very important, yes, normatively, to emphasize that no means no and yes means yes. For a good, respectable girl to say yes immediately is deeply unrespectable. Sneha gave us an example of one of the young women she knew in Chennai. She played sports for the state of Tamil Nadu, which meant that she met other people from other colleges, including young men, who also played the same sport quite often. And she had met this male athlete whom she kind of had a crush on, and she'd seen him staring at her across the field a few times and everything. She told me about how for six months, every day he approached her and asked her out, and she said no. Six months, she was testing him, right? So she said that if he'd... taken no for an answer and gone away she would have thought that he only wanted something casual with her but because he persisted for 6 months she was sure of his love right they eventually broke up and that's why i heard this story but that said i think it was really important to this young woman to ensure that that the man she was with cared about her enough to persist for 6 months however if she hadn't wanted him to persist the same thing could have been sexual harassment right and thanks to that i think the line is quite blurry So this issue of respectability that Sneha was talking about how women need to be seen as respectable 
is something that extends to other areas of women's lives. For women at college, this means having their clothing choices scrutinized and how they spend their time controlled in a way that men do not. It also has implications for young women living in student accommodation known as hostels. Hostels are sort of fairly restrictive institutions and in in my experience have gotten more so in the last 10 or 15 years with the anxiety about, you know, young women and sexual violence in Indian cities. Sneha told us about the strict curfew policies that these hostels have. The curfews range from as early as 4 p.m. in the afternoon to maybe 7 p.m. if you're lucky. Sneha actually lived in an off-campus hostel in Chennai for a year as part of her research to learn what life was like there. In the past it would have been more possible to sort of evade curfew by having a friend sign for you and so on, but increasingly there's also cameras everywhere watching them. I counted a hundred odd cameras in this one college, and the joke is literally the bathroom. It's the only place where where there's no camera. Um, so the girls are constantly being watched, and it's it's something that they feel quite keenly. So young women are kind of kept under lock and key for their own safety. Was it like this when you were at university, Indrajit? To be honest, you know, I wouldn't know because of the male privilege at work here. as boys we never had any such restrictions which we know some of our female friends did but there is a growing movement in india called pinjara tod which literally means break the cage in hindi it's all about making hostels less restrictive and reclaiming the public space to make it safer for women young women also find ways of resisting or working around the restrictions that are put on them Sneha told us about the phenomenon of daytime clubbing that she found going on. So there are these clubs both official clubs so commercial establishments as well as unofficial clubs which are you know dance parties that happen in people's houses or in places that young people stake out for themselves which only happen in the afternoon. This is because classes typically end around 1 or 2 in the afternoon and then people have a period somewhere between you know 2 and 4 hours. after that depending on the particular curfews of their hostels during which they would otherwise go to cafes or you know to the mall or something of the sort and wander about nobody by the way gets back to hostel before curfew that is just not done so right? it's like bang on yeah bang on everybody gets there at exactly that time so these afternoon clubs were an interesting find because what they do is create the atmosphere of nightlife during the day so that it's really dark inside right you can smell the weed you can smell the alcohol right and they feel just as serious oxford's clubs at 2 in the morning and people act just as insane inside right so i'm kind of like after everything else you've been telling me about i'm yeah. kind of shocked that they exist why <laughs> because why does it matter if people are in a club at 11 p.m. drinking and partying versus 3 p.m. oh because um you can get home respectably So After it comes that. back to this thing of respectability. Yeah, and it's about visibility. You have to show yourself to be a respectable girl, right? So a lot of these women will wear, you know, nice conservative clothes to college with say a spaghetti strap top inside or will have, you know, clothes that are more revealing that they can change into. And then they'll change into them in the bathroom of this place and then dance around for a while, have some fun, take a few selfies. And once that's over, change back. right and um go back to the hostel in an auto rickshaw just hold all of their feelings and their you know sense of drunkenness in 
until they sign the hostel's register, right, and then collapse in bed afterwards. I asked Sneha what would happen if someone broke curfew, and she told us another great story to illustrate. So there was one girl who got um, an internship at a newspaper whose office was on the outskirts of the city. And she was very keen to succeed. She really wanted to be a journalist. Being a journalist for young women is now an increasingly sort of mainstream aspiration. There are a lot of female journalists in the you know public eye. And she was very excited about having been given a big story and knew that she might be risking, you know, breaking curfew by actually covering it. And when she was done with her story, she realized she had about an hour to travel back into the city, which if anyone's seen the traffic in Indian cities these days is very little time. So she got a ride from a male co-worker to start with really dangerous, right? Because if the warden of the hostel had seen her on the back of a male co-worker's motorbike, she would have gotten into a lot of trouble. So not dangerous because he might do something, but dangerous because uh-huh. of how it would look. Absolutely. So it got worse because they crashed against something on the motorbike and she fell down and she had this massive gash on her knee. And then she finally got an auto rickshaw and came to the hostel. She was half an hour late for curfew. Um, she should have really been sent to the hospital because I mean, she had an enormous gash and clearly needed stitches. The warden left her sort of bleeding on the veranda of the hostel while she went in to call the girl's parents and kept her bleeding there for the next few hours until they got there. So her parents were called to the hostel as punishment? As punishment, yeah. And what would her parents done when they arrived? So parents were really upset. I don't think they knew about the internship. They were concerned that the internship was really dangerous because she'd been on the outskirts of the city. She'd been risking breaking curfew. They were also really upset that she'd, um, you know, taken this ride from a male co-worker. And all of this is, you know, I want to emphasize it's all with the best of intentions, right, quite often, because horrible things do happen to young women, right, all over the world, but they do happen. Eventually, so her parents took her home for a few days and then she came back to the hostel. So that story didn't end particularly badly in the end. But... It was a dramatic moment and all, all she was was half an hour late. The more serious side of this can be seen in trying to protect women from who they fall in love with. As we heard from Charu Gupta earlier, there is an idea that permeates certain sections of Indian society. The idea of love jihad, a fear that some Hindu communities have of Muslim men trying to trick Hindu women into converting to Islam by making them fall in love with them. Similarly, fears over the safety and chastity of women have led to the rise of what are called anti-Romeo squads. These squads were established in the wake of the high-profile Delhi rape case under the aegis of protecting women from sexual harassment. So anti-Romeo squads were established by uh, one of the state governments in North India in of Uttar Pradesh to say that the plain clothes policemen will be now keeping a watch on cases of quote-unquote eve-teasing. So you had squads of plain clothes policemen who were trained to look out for and stop sexual harassment. But as Charu says, these anti-Romeo squads turned out to be quite controversial. Love itself is seen as something which 
as a way by which women are expressing themselves and it was a way actually to control women that was the logic behind it but it had to be couched in this language of trying to protect women which itself is a problematic word i mean women have not asked for this kind of a protection but actually they landed up harassing women and men much more because these policemen or the government itself is unable to differentiate between consensual and forceful expressions of love so couples holding hands on valentine day giving roses to each other were harassed you know or anybody who was seen as just walking together it was basically a way to morally police public spaces and it's not just hindus and muslims whose love gets policed though these cross religious relationships are the focus of love jihad rumors it's also an issue for people of different castes Yep, so Sneha Krishnan at Oxford told us two contrasting stories that reflect how caste, privilege and concerns of what it means to be respectable affected different people's approaches to relationships. There was an upper middle class young woman who did not live in a hostel because her family had a home in the city. So she came from um, an upper caste Malayali family and she had met a Muslim boy who also lived in the same neighborhood as her. So quite an elite Muslim. right they had fallen in love in um her final year of school and were still dating when when i knew them and she fully had plans to marry him in the end and so on and so forth and in her case she knew that the fact that he was muslim would be kind of a problem for her extended family right and she worried also that his family might ask her to convert to islam but it wasn't something that kept her up at night worrying because by and large they came from the same kind of social milieu so for this couple the fact that they were from different religions wasn't such a big deal but then sneha told us about another couple she knew who were from less wealthy less supposedly respectable families there was another young woman that i met who had fallen in love with someone that she didn't realize was dalit until after they talked about it and once she knew he was dalit she was completely apprehensive about continuing the affair mainly because she knew that this would be a serious problem for her family who were themselves you know members of the large bracket that's called the other backward classes and she knew that her family would see this as a major step down for her and she worried about you know her father acting violently and so on and so forth and additionally she really didn't want to sort of marry down plain and simple right because there was a lot of anxiety that she would simply lose social status and as she explained to me for families like her social status doesn't come easily so she actually eventually broke it off explicitly for reasons of of this sort when it comes to the world of politics the way that caste intersects with gender also has big implications for women politicians yes we can see this in someone like mayavati who's the leader of the bahujan samaj party or bsp Yeah, Mayavati is very significant in different ways. She's significant symbolically as a representative of the Dalit community. That's Carol Sperry, an assistant professor at Nottingham University, who's just co-authored a book with Shirin Rai, a professor at the University of Warwick, called Performing Representation: Women Members in the Indian Parliament. As Carol says, Mayavati is significant as a Dalit leader. Remember Dalits are a group that have historically been oppressed as untouchables. From her very humble beginnings Mayavati became chief minister of India's biggest state Uttar Pradesh four times over the last 20 years. 
Her party, the BSP, is significant because it explicitly fights for Dalit rights and low-caste emancipation. The BSP has worked hard to ensure that Dalits and members of other so-called low-castes were not merely foot soldiers of the Congress or the BJP, but could advance their own political voice. So, the BSP may not be great at winning elections, especially outside Uttar Pradesh, but they do provide a means for Dalits to assert their public presence. The other thing, when we talk about Dalit women and women in general, there's such a wide variety. Women are, they might be Dalit, but they might be very different. They might have very different experiences. So, for example, when you compare Mayavati to Mira Kumar, for example, who was the first female speaker of the Lok Sabha, we see very different kind of backgrounds, very different careers in politics. So on the one hand, they might be Dalit women, but of course, even among Dalit women, Dalit women are diverse as well. Mira Kumar, who Carol mentions here, is also Dalit. She's a Congress party politician. Her father was a former deputy prime minister. So she's had a very different upbringing and background to perhaps the average Dalit woman. So there are some very high-profile women politicians in India's parliament, the Lok Sabha. And there are women from a range of castes and parties. Sneha Krishnan explained how there are also lots of women who fit into the BJP's Hindu nationalist mould. I think it would be a mistake to think of women as a singular category because Hindu nationalism has among its supporters certainly a lot of upper caste, you know, middle class urban women, upper caste, non-middle class, you know, non-urban women, and so on. So on the one hand, there's the sort of sadhvi image, which is the image of the sort of renunciate woman, right? So women who typically wear saffron robes and aren't married and, you know, claim to live austere lives, and so on. A good example of a sadhvi is Uma Bharati, the firebrand Hindutva leader, born into an impoverished rural family and from among the so-called low castes, who rises up the party ranks in the BJP to become chief minister of Madhya Pradesh state and is today a minister in Modi's cabinet. There's also the sort of, you know, good married woman image, which, you know, Sushma Swaraj, for instance, was a you know, substantially important politician um, within the BJP who embodied that. And I mean, there have been female politicians who have sort of capitalized on these, you know, quite right wing imaginaries of women who had really to gain power. So women do feature across the political spectrum, but the actual number of women politicians is still very low. Here's Carol Sperry again. The National Parliament has never really got above 12% of MPs as women. And the state level average is often less than this, about sort of 8%. So while there's some very senior sort of individual women leaders in Indian politics, such as party leaders, chief ministers of some states, a former prime minister, and parliamentary leaders like two female speakers of the lower house of parliament, when you look at the average MP or state level MLA, this is overwhelmingly male. And there's a fairly depressing statistic that if you take all of the women MPs ever elected to the lower house of parliament, you would not fill a single Lok Sabha, you would not fill a single lower house of parliament, which is usually about 543 elected seats. It's not that women aren't engaging with politics. Carol says the number of women turning out to vote in elections has grown a significant amount in recent decades. 
And if you look at general election by general election, slowly that gap between men and women's voter turnout has narrowed over time. And my colleague Rajaswari Deshpande in uh, Pune University suggests that this indicates the arrival of a women's constituency or a women's vote. So this kind of essentially encourages politicians to learn and to understand and to appeal to women's votes more and more because of the increasing turnout. In the 2014 national elections, voter turnout for men was 67% and for women it was 66%. So pretty high for both. Now, of course, both men and women politicians must and do represent both their male and female constituents. Nonetheless, this gender inequality at the highest level of politics is reflective of the gender inequality that exists in India. If India wants to see more women represented at the highest level of politics, there needs to be a wider cultural shift. Right now, Carol says, there's a reason politics is a male-dominated space, and it ties into the kind of morality policing we were hearing about earlier, as well as the physical violence women face. There is a sense that women are often turned off going into politics because there is a sense about whether they would get aspersions cast on their character, whether they're, they call it character assassination. And there are um, examples, you know, where women candidates and MPs have faced those kinds of problems. So whether it's character assassination, whether it is actually physical violence as well. I mean, the online space as well as, I mean, as you know, this is a problem around the world. The online space can also be very violent, particularly for women in politics as well. Unless efforts are made to make politics more inclusive for women, Carol says, India is unlikely to see a big improvement in the number of women politicians working at the national level. At the same time, if that space is intimidating or if it's violent or if there are you know, very real personal as well as professional costs to them in terms of, you know, family integrity and reputation and all all of those things, then actually it shouldn't necessarily be the burden for women to accept those things in order to be able to participate. It should be the responsibility of those seeking to create a more democratic politics to actually address those kinds of issues, those kinds of problems. So whether it's the corruption or violence or um, the use of money in politics, intimidation, particularly gendered forms of violence and gendered forms of intimidation. It shouldn't necessarily be the cost for women to be in politics. It should be about trying to make democratic politics more inclusive for everybody. That's it for this episode. We'll be exploring the Indian economy in part five of India Tomorrow. Many people felt that Modi did a very brave thing, a very bold thing. And many people felt that, okay, we suffered. And this is my own interviews with lots of poor villagers in different parts of eastern India. Their argument to me was, well, okay, you know, we lost some income, some ways to maintain our livelihoods. But we think that the rich person in our village suffered more. And we feel that's actually good, that that person suffered more than I did. And therefore, I feel that this policy, much as I think I got hurt from this particular policy, I think I support it. That's in part five of our India Tomorrow series. Do subscribe to the Anthill podcast so you don't miss out. A big thanks to my co-host, Indrajit Roy. Thank you, Annabelle. 
You can read more of The Conversation's coverage of India by academics from around the world on theconversation.com or follow us on social media. If you've got any questions relating to what we've been discussing in this series, please do get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com. We'll put these questions to a panel of academics we've got lined up to discuss the election results at the end of May. And if you're looking for a transcript of this episode and other episodes in this series, it will also be available soon on theconversation.com. A massive thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. The Ant Hill is produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. Sound by Alex Port Felix. Thanks to you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>